prayer for you. Lord, we thank you for your gift of love. We thank you that it's called grace. It's a fever that we don't earn. We never could earn it. We could never merit it. But yet you love us and you came to free us from that which is destroying us. And I pray today as I share uh, a message on your redemptive work that we will get an understanding of what real, what redemption is all about and how that plays out in our forgiveness and our freedom and it'll deliver us even from the hurts and the resentments that we carry in our life. I pray today that we will not only hear about it, but we will experience it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. And uh, chapter 1, we're only going to look at two little verses there, but we're going to develop the theme of those verses this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. A number of years ago, I read a book by Brent Curtis and John Elridge, and they were writing uh, a book, and they entitled it Sacred Romance. And what they're really talking about in this book is our relationship with God and how it is really, in a sense, a romance with God. And he, they, they challenge the cry of our soul to discover this amazing love relationship. The problem is we kind of struggle with the way God operates because he doesn't always do things the way we think he should. Anybody relate to that? doesn't always do things the way we think he ought to do it. And many of us are convinced at some level in our hearts that our, that our main challenge in life are the painful realities we're experiencing. In other words, if I could just get rid of these problems, I'd be happy. You know, if I could just get rid of all the difficulties in my life, life would be so much better. If we could just overcome the damage of other people's sins against us and just be loved better by those around us and perhaps ourselves love a little better, we reason what we would be free to really live well. So, but what we don't always notice is that we ourselves often are committed to a path that's actually counterproductive to our own happiness. A lot of times we're committed to a path that we think is a freedom, but is actually leading us into bondage. The way we want to live often feels right, so much like what's happening around us, but the problem seems to be in our minds the way others treat us, or maybe it's we sense there's an indifference by God to our hurt, to our pain, to our cry. See, we would like an understandable, safe God that we can predict and predetermine how he will act. In other words, that's, that's what a lot of ancient religions, and that's a lot of religion is all about. I do this, and God's obligated to do that, right? And sometimes as Christians, we fall into that trap because we think, you know, if I'm doing the right things before God, then he should be doing these things. And when he doesn't do these things, we're really upset and disappointed with God. Because we have this idea that we can manipulate God. And somehow doing what we want and we play these games and we bargain with God and all the rest of it. So, But what we're really trying to do is live life on our terms. Rather than letting God do something more significant in our lives. How many know there's probably one Bible character that probably amplifies what I'm talking about very strongly? 
And his name is Jacob. Jacob is found in the Old Testament. He's a patriarch. David, I mean, sorry, Jacob really wants God's blessing in our life. Matter of fact, he kind of manipulates to get God's blessing in his life. And everything you see about Jacob, he's kind of a little bit of a schemer. How many have read the story of Jacob? You know, he's, you know, he's kind of trying to manipulate to get God to do what he wants. And he, you know, he even deceives his brother. Does all kinds of stuff. That's the story of Jacob. And yet, I believe that Jacob's life is a story of redemption. And what I mean by that is, apart from all of his cleverness and his manipulation, God is actually the author of his life. And things happen in Jacob's life. You know, he's, he's cheating his brother, so then he ends up fleeing because his brother, of course, gets upset, wants to kill him. And he goes and stays with his uncle. And you know what his uncle does? The very thing that he was doing to his brother. You know, he kind of sowed this whole thing of deception and then he receives it in kind. And then later on we see him, he's wrestling with an angel. Later on we find out he's actually wrestling with God and and God touches him. And then he starts walking with a limp. You know, it's almost like God allows this place of pain and brokenness to come into his life, but it's it's creating a dependency in his life upon God. And, and, And it's really, God is teaching some powerful lessons to Jacob that he's really in control of the whole thing. Matter of fact, Paul in the 17th chapter of Acts tells the Athenians the stunning news that every single thing in in life, both among nations and individuals, is literally orchestrated with the sole objective that they might seek and know God. This revelation requires a bit of reflection. We're used to thinking of the great movements of history, even the movements of our own immediate relationships, as being impersonal and somewhat arbitrary. But with God, who notes the fall of every sparrow, the events of our lives are thoughtfully and thoroughly orchestrated to bring about our redemption. Now, as we look at this idea of redemption... I don't know if we fully grasp what it really means. And in Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to experience uh, two expressions that really are synonymous, two expressions that explain the nature of what God wants and has done in our lives. He's done it, but we have to experience it. I'll say it that way. God has already done this for us, But I'm not always convinced that even though we may intellectually say, yeah, I believe that, but am I really experiencing what God has provided for me? And that's what I am so concerned about in all of our lives, that Jesus' death on the cross was for our redemption and for our forgiveness. And so I want to look at these two expressions of the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. And I want to explain to us today you know, what is true, the true meaning of redemption, and then the understanding of forgiveness and how that plays out in our lives, the application of it. So redemption then is an act that brings freedom into our lives. You know, think about, you know, if you were an African slave in the South prior to the Civil War, you were not free. You know, or think about 1930, late 30s and early 40s in Europe when, when, when the Nazi regime conquered Europe, the most part of Europe. 
The people living there were not free. They were under tyranny. They were under a dictator. They, they, didn't, they just couldn't live life as they saw fit to live. They were in bondage. So what is redemption? To redeem literally means to buy or buy back, whether as a purchase or a ransom. In a theological thought, it means that you and I who were, you know, slaves, you say, well, we're not slaves. Yes, we were slaves. Now think of the Old Testament. The Israelites went into Egypt, and then eventually the king of Egypt made them slaves. And they were in slavery, and that's why they cried out to God to be delivered from their slavery, and God sent a man by the name of Moses to deliver them out of their slavery. But how did Moses go about doing that? That's the story of redemption, that God was working through Moses, bringing great plagues on the Egyptians. And finally, it wasn't so much the plagues, but in the end, the last thing that happened, the night before they were released, what happened was that the Israelites slew a lamb. They killed a lamb, one for each household. And they put the blood of that lamb over the doorposts of their households so that the angel of judgment would pass over their households. And that angel of judgment came upon every household where the blood had not been applied and struck and killed the firstborn child or firstborn son of every person that did not have the blood applied over their, door, their, their, their the, the, the doorposts of their door. Isn't that an amazing story? That's why, you know, is Jewish people today celebrate a thing called the Passover because God passed over them and didn't judge them, but he judged those who had no faith and didn't believe that God was about to do this. That was, there was a sense of redemption happening in the story. And the Egyptians were happy to let their slaves go after that. They released them. They were, you know, that they were bought, in a sense, by God. Inevitably, then, the emphasis of the redemptive image is on our sorry state. <laughs> Isn't that sad? Because, you see, even though we were not in a physical captivity, all of us were in a spiritual captivity. We were all slaves to our own sinful nature. We were all slaves to our own sinful desires. We, you know, we were not free to just, you know, do what was right in God's eyes. We were, you know, maybe we, we, maybe we wanted to do the right thing, but we found ourselves at times doing the wrong thing. And it brought pain to others and it brought pain to ourselves. And so this image is actually focusing on the fact that we were in a tough condition. You know, sin which made an act of divine rescue necessary. Now, this kind of goes against uh, one of the key elements in our soul. That's our pride. Because what it's basically saying is, you and I can't help ourselves. You and I are in a helpless condition. You and I are in a hopeless condition. You and I are in a condition, the Bible speaks of, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And I always ask the question, what can a dead person do for themselves? And the answer is what? Nothing. They're dead. And so that goes against the grain of all of the human ingenuity and pride that we have. And, and you know, we're, we're full of hubris. We're full of pride as individuals. We don't think we are, but we are. We think we can do it all by ourselves. And, and that's the problem. We can't. This is a power greater than ourselves. See, you and I have to acknowledge 
that this is a power greater than ourselves. And when we come to that recognition, and then we become to realize that we cannot save ourselves, and then we cry out to God, and then God is the one who provides the, the price to set us free. This is what redemption is all about. In the Old Testament, property and animals and people and the nation were all redeemed by the payment of a price. Isn't that interesting? So there was redemption. You had to pay. You had to you have to be ransomed. There was a cost. And we see this concept. You know, even in a kidnapping situation, there's a ransom paid. That's the idea. There's something that's being transacted here. So what is the nature? Oh, okay. Uh, John Stock goes on to say the right, even the duty to play the role of a kinsman redeemer. We find that story in the book of Ruth, you know, buying back a property which had been alienated in order to keep it in the family or tribe was illustrated in, in the case of Boaz. And then later on, we're going to see that same story in the case of Jeremiah as they were about to go into exile. But what is the nature of redemption? Well, Francis, Francis Falks says the fundamental idea of redemption is that of the setting free of a thing or a person that has come to belong to another. Now, you cannot carry this concept to its fullest expression because I've even read some theologians thinking that Jesus' death on the cross was somehow paying Satan for our ransom. That's an incorrect thought. Okay, don't go there. Sometimes we have these analogies in the Bible, but you can't take them to their fullest expression, and that's one of them. It's just the idea that God was paying for our freedom with his sacrificial life. That's the concept we need to get, okay? Everybody follow that? That's where it stops, period. So we need to, as I've already said, we have to remember Israel was bought by God. You know, it, that picture of the lamb, Go back to that for a minute. After all those ten plagues, what happened? Did, it, did Egypt let the Israelites go? No, they didn't. It wasn't until they got to that moment where the lamb was brought on the scene and the lamb was slain and the lamb's sacrificial life was given so that you know there was the passing over of judgment. That was the moment that brought about their redemption. And we need to understand that. That's the price that was paid for the nation of Israel, okay? Without, without the shedding of blood, there is no, the Bible says, forgiveness. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1, 7 through 8, we're going to read here of the redemptive price of our freedom. And it says here, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now, beautiful. We have this redemption, the redemption price for us being freed from sin is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That's why when Jesus was walking on, the, on earth, John the Baptist comes along, he sees Jesus, and he says something very theological to his, his followers, his disciples. He goes, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing at Jesus. He's saying Jesus is actually God's sacrifice that's going to bring redemption for humanity. And Jesus actually understands this as well. 
Francis Falk goes on to write, in the case of the Passover, a sacrifice was associated with the redemption of the people. Instilled deeply into the consciousness of the people was the fact that sin could not be set aside lightly. Sin required sacrifice. Now, how many know today what we have done as a culture is we have trivialized and minimized sin? Matter of fact, we don't even talk about sin anymore. How many know that's true? We talk about mistakes. We talk about inabilities, liabilities, all kinds. We have all kinds of words, but you don't hear that language anymore. We don't talk about sin, you know, because our culture is moving away from a theological understanding. And yet, how many recognize that the problems in our culture are not disappearing? Does anybody kind of recognize that? We have all of this human wisdom, and we have all of these issues, and we're trying to solve the human dilemma. And yet, we notice, you know, there's more addiction today, there's more crime today. It might not now becoming more relevant. Is this connecting with you a little bit more? And we're bemoaning because, you know, like our city says, oh, what we'll do is hire more police officers. How many know that's not going to solve the problem? Because the problem is not external. I'm not saying that that, we don't need to do that. I'm just saying that's an external solution. You know, the real problem is what's going on in the human heart. The real problem is the fact that people are trapped in addictions. The real problem is that people are living self-expressed lives at the expense of other people. And that's what's happening. More and more people are not living for, for others. They're living for themselves. But many of them are trapped in their own addictions. And so once you're addicted to a problem like, you know, a chemical problem, you're addicted to drugs, you don't care who you hurt anymore. Come on. That, that's no, it's, it's immaterial anymore. We don't care because the addiction is now controlling their lives. They are now in a state of slavery. They're not free. And so, you know, we're trying to, how do we cope with this, you know? Well, our, our society and its wisdom are saying, we'll just give them more of what they need, you know? Pretty soon we'll be paying for their drugs. How many know that? That's where we're going. I mean, because they're stealing from other people and just, just give it to them, you know? And then we'll even moderate so that they can just stay in a state of, of being addicted all the time. But how many know we're not helping people like that? We're leaving them in the state. You say, well, yeah, but you're giving them the freedom. I say, yeah, the freedom to destroy themselves. That's what's happening. They're not free to live. They're free to die. That's what's going on. And I'm telling you, there's a power that's needed that's greater than what humanity is having to offer. There's a power that has to come from within. It's the power of the living God transforming the human heart and setting people free from their addictions. And that's the nature of sin. Sin is so powerful, it is addictive in its power. And so we've redefined sin as now a problem or a sickness, or whatever we want to call it, but we never label it correctly. And how many know when you don't identify the problem correctly, you can never treat it adequately? And that's what we're struggling with as a culture. And I tell you, we're not going to get any better. It's going to continually be a struggle because until God's Spirit moves into the human heart, people will not be changed internally and therefore they will not experience a transformation in the way they relate to other people in the culture. 
They need to be free. The book of Hebrews tells us, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so throughout the pages of the Old Testament, you have all of these sacrifices for the sins of the people. And yet this was just pointing the way for the ultimate sacrifice, the death of Christ on Calvary, that he would come and die once and for all at the end of the age so that there would be no more need for any more lambs being slaughtered. There would be no need for any human being to die. Actually, Jesus died for all. Listen to what the psalmist tells us about redemption. Because they were, there was an understanding, and a correct one. Redemption was costly. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. In other words, a human being, not just any human being can do this. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that he should live on forever and not see decay. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. In other words, the ancient people saw that God had to be their redeemer. And that's exactly what happens. God himself becomes a man and becomes our redeemer. And then Peter goes on to explain it to us. Because in the Old Testament, they were actually, you know, paid silver and gold to redeem their animals back or to, re, you know, to you know, buy back something that was to be devoted to God. And Peter goes on, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect." Jesus himself declared that his ultimate purpose in coming to earth was to provide himself as a ransom, as a substitute. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now the word redemption means to ransom. So Jesus says, I'm coming as your kinsman redeemer. I'm coming to redeem you. I'm coming to ransom you. I'm coming to be the substitute for you. That's an amazing thing. So what is Jesus saying? I'm coming to die for you. I'm coming to die for you. And then Romans tells us that God, God sent his son, but his son came not while we were, you know, like, oh, thank you, we need you, God. No, And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemy, God died for us. While we were in rebellion against him, God died for us. That's amazing. That just tells you the depths of God's love for humanity. The miracle of redemption. You know, it should give us some pause when we consider the price that that it, it cost God to redeem us. You know, C.S. Lewis says it costs God nothing so far as we know to create nice things. Like it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. He just spoke and it happened. But to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. In other words, God had to give up his son in order for us to be ransomed from our sin. That's powerful. The power of Christ's redemption. Too many believers live in spiritual defeat. It seems that sin to them seems greater than God's power. You say, how do you say that? Because 
A lot of times we just live in spiritual defeat. We're letting our sins control our lives. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews relates the difference between the Old Testament sacrifice and the fulfillment of that sacrifice in the person of Christ. And I love this. He said the law, the whole Old Testament law, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it could never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. In other words, you know that word perfect? It doesn't just mean that makes us holy. It means it makes us complete. It, mean, it means that this is a, a, a sacrifice that's ultimately satisfactory. You don't have to keep adding sacrifices. You know, a lot of Christians think this way. You know, yes, Jesus died for me and saved me, but now I've got to keep doing all these things to somehow get acceptance from God. Listen, folks. You and I, when we come to Christ, are completely accepted by God, and we serve God not because, you know, we're trying to earn His acceptance, but we're serving Christ out of acceptance. I've already been accepted. See, I think a lot of times we look at ourselves and we go, I'm not worthy. Some of you in this room, you struggle with worthiness. I am not worthy. And I always tell people, and they tell me this, because I have people come to me and they say, Pastor, I'm not worthy. I'm going, you're right, you're not worthy. But I just want to encourage you, I'm not worthy either. There's not one person on this planet who's worthy. Okay, we're all in the same boat. So if you feel unworthy, join the club. We're all unworthy. I'm just going to settle that for us, right? Once and for all. You are not worthy. I'm not worthy. Let's stop playing that game. It's not about being worthy. You will never be worthy. You could never be good enough. Okay? Everyone take a deep breath. <laughs> Blow it out. I have to stop trying to be so worthy. Knock it off. Okay? This is, this is going to free you. I'm trying to help you to get this. It's going to free you. Okay. God has made you worthy. You are worthy because now you're in Christ. Let me just keep explaining this. It'll hit you yet. I'm praying. When we stand before God because we are in Christ, what the Father is seeing is not me. What he's seeing is Christ. When he looks at you, he's not seeing you with all of your problems. He's seeing Christ in you. I love that. Everyone catching on? Let's go another way. Chinese symbol for righteousness is a lamb over a man. So when the father looks down, he's looking at the lamb rather than the man. So what does the Father see when you and I receive Christ? He sees Christ. And when he sees Christ, what does he see? Someone who's holy, blameless, without sin. How many go, that's, that's amazing, Pastor. Isn't that, how many are getting a little excited? The Father sees you as sinless because he's seeing Christ in you and you are in Christ. You see that beautiful picture? You know, otherwise, he says, now, he's going on. 
this one sacrifice. Otherwise, they would not have stopped being offered. If, if Christ's sacrifice had not been perfect, they would have had to keep offering sacrifices. But because Christ's sacrifice is completely perfect, all sacrifices have come to an end. Do you know why Stephen was stoned? Because he told the Jewish people, you don't need a temple and sacrifices anymore because your body becomes a temple and Christ has already completed the perfect sacrifice. It just blew them out of the waters. They were just so locked into an old paradigm. Stephen's coming along telling them, this is what it was all about. This is what it was bringing us to. For the worshipers would have, would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. He's talking about in the Old Testament. But those sacrifices were on an annual basis. And what were they doing? Reminding people they're sinners. Reminding them they're sinners. Okay? But you don't have to be reminded you're a sinner. Because Christ has taken away our sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offering and sin offerings. You were not pleased. In other words, God says, that that wasn't working. Then I said, Here am I. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Jesus said, I've come to do what we have agreed, the Godhead agreed in all of eternity. I've come to do this. First he said, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here am I, I've come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. Basically, he fulfilled them all. It's not that he eradicated them. He became the ultimate expression of everything the Old Testament was talking about. You follow that? So it's not like he said, no, the law was bad. No, he goes, I fulfilled it all. I did it all. I've even fulfilled all the sacrifices. They're all fulfilled in Christ. And then he says, and by that will, we have been made holy. I got to stop. You know, notice I italicized the word that will. I got to ask the question. Whose will makes us holy? Christ's will. Not my will. See, some of us in this room think, you know, if I just had a stronger will, pastor, I'd be more holy. And I'm going, no, it's not that at all. You misunderstood. It's not your will, it's Christ's will. By his will, you and I become holy. You don't make yourself holy. I don't make myself holy. Christ makes us holy. Is that amazing? Wow. Let's get a hold of this. Because if you really grasp this, it changes everything about your life. It'll make you act holy. How's that? Yeah. We are made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. I like that. It's not our will. It's his will that makes us holy. You know what our great problem is? Where where do we tend to focus? On us. Can I encourage us today? Take your eyes off yourself. Take your eyes off yourself. Just remove them from yourself. And start looking up. And if you will focus there instead of here, you will get freer and freer and freer. How's that? Real simple. Is that encouraging? I love it. 
Okay. Now, one ramification of this powerful, liberating truth, we don't serve to be accepted because we're already accepted. We serve from acceptance. So what's the application of this redemption in our lives? In other words, what does or should Christ's redemption have? What kind of an impact should this have on my life? And I like the way John Stott writes it. He said, it remembers that Jesus Christ has bought us with his blood. Therefore, he died for me in order for me to live for him. Are you following this? Then he goes it this way. Consequently, we belong to him. That's why the Apostle Paul said, you have been bought with a price. You're not your own. You belong to God. So it's not about you living out your life. It's not about you doing your thing. It's not about you doing your agenda. It's not about you doing your will. It's about you and I surrendering to Christ and saying, not my will, but yours be done. What is your agenda for my life? And I begin to live out that agenda. And then, you know, all of a sudden, it's really easy to see how God is going to start really answering prayer because now we're walking in step with what God wants. Because a lot of times what we want, what God wants, becomes conflicted. And then we're upset with God when he doesn't answer our prayer. Like God doesn't answer prayer. Say, hey, wait a minute. Maybe he doesn't want you to do that. Maybe we need to say, God, I just want to do what you want. Let's go there. He said it should motivate us as individual Christians to holiness just as it should motivate presbyters to faithful ministry. See, he's, when Paul was writing to the, or speaking to the elders at Ephesus, he said to them, you know, the church has been bought by Christ's blood. He died for the church. This is not our church. This is Christ's church. And when ministers of the gospel forget that, they can manipulate and abuse people. But when you understand these are God's people, this is Christ's church, he paid the price for them, then my responsibility is to be a faithful minister of Christ. Wow. And it's also the reason why in Revelation we have those beautiful worship experiences because who are they worshiping? The lamb that was slain. They're worshiping him. Why? Because he's the one that redeems us. He's the one that sets us free. Let me move on to the second expression. And that's the second expression in the text is he's, we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. And then we talk about, and then the forgiveness of sins. Now, that idea of forgiveness is, is an incredible gift. It's the gift we receive when we least deserve it. How many know we don't deserve to be forgiven by God? How many say we know that's true? We don't deserve it. And then I always tell people, yeah, but when I forgive somebody else, I'm giving them the gift they don't deserve. See, that's what forgiveness is. A lot of Christians go, I'll forgive them when they finally acknowledge they did something wrong. Well, I'm going, no, but now now you're telling me that you're going to give them the gift when they kind of somewhat deserve it? No, you need to give them the gift when they don't even know they did the thing that was wrong, when they still think they're in the right. Amen? That's when we need to forgive people. We need to forgive people all the time. Because Christ has forgiven us when we least deserved it. We need to forgive people when they least deserve it. So, author, but what is forgiveness? And I like what Warren Worsby says, and you're going to see, see a, a similarity. He says, the word forgiveness means to carry away. This reminds us of a ritual on the Jewish Day of Atonement when the high priest sent the scapegoat into the wilderness. 
Now, it's interesting to me that this idea is really this idea of being freed from sin. It's being loosed from sin. Now, think of what happens on the Day of Atonement. Some of you may not recognize, but let me explain what happens on the Jewish High Holy Day. There's one day that they were commanded by God to fast. You know in the Old Testament, there's only one commanded fast. It was on the seventh month, on the tenth day. It was the Day of Atonement. They were all to fast, and the high priest would come. And this is what it says in the book of Leviticus. Well, let me go back here. Francis Falk talks about uh, what it means. He says, sin involves the bondage of the mind and will and, and, and are all of our bodily members. But forgiveness is freedom. The word used here means literally the loosing of a person from that which binds. And so redemption is the price we're paying to liberate people. And forgiveness is loosing people from that which is holding them bound. How many see it's almost, you know, I was reading John Stott. He said, forgiveness and redemption are synonymous terms. In other words, they're just saying the same thing in a different way. Okay. We do that a lot. How many have ever used synonyms to get an idea across? You say one thing and then you say it in a different way, but you're saying the same thing. So redemption, well, I write it here, are synonymous terms. We're being freed from our sin. He's reinforcing it because I think sometimes we don't really believe we're free. Because sin is a very powerful force. And we keep, you know, the enemy keeps deceiving us to think that we have to keep doing the wrong thing. And I'm going, no, you're free. You know, it's almost like being, you know, I think the one time Houdini couldn't get out of a place was the time they tricked him. You know, they, they put him in a jail, but they didn't lock the door. He couldn't, he couldn't seem to break out. Couldn't figure out how to change the lock. You know, he couldn't get out. He's freaking out, right? Somebody walked up and just pulled the door open. Because it was unlocked the whole time. And that's the problem with us Christians. The moment we give our life to Jesus, the the door unlocks. We're free. But we sit in the jail cell going, I'm locked in. I'm locked in. I, I have to keep sinning. I go, no, you don't. You have a power now inside of you that is greater than your sin. But let me go back to the Day of Atonement. It's a beautiful picture of forgiveness. You know, Aaron had just finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar. And Moses is telling him, and Yeshua's going to bring forth the live goat. How many have ever heard the word scapegoat? You know, we have a lot of words that we borrow from the Bible. We don't even realize it. We're using biblical language. And the scapegoat is usually, you know, a person who's, who we pin the blame for something. They may or may not be guilty, but we're just, we're, we're, we're blaming them for it, right? That's the scapegoat. But why did we get this idea from? From the Old Testament. You know, here it is. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of all the Israelites. Isn't that amazing, right? Man, can you imagine that day? Poor, poor Aaron. He's just unloading on this poor goat. You know? You know? All their sins. And he puts them on the goat's head. How does he do that? It's called impartation. He's He's transferring. There's a transform, transference, right? It's, it's a visual picture for us. The hands are placed on the goat. All the sins are being confessed. So what's happening? All the sins are now being put on the goat. And then the goat is sent away into the desert in the care of someone appointed for that task. And then what happens to the goat? The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. And what happens to the goat in the wilderness? It usually dies, right? He's consumed by some other beast. He's a sacrificial animal, right? He's, the sin is cast away. 
The sin has been removed. And that's why we have this beautiful statement that God says to the psalmist in the Old Testament, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our iniquities from us. God has laid on him, Jesus, the sin of the world. Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus was the one who died for us. As a matter of fact, the writer in Hebrews who's preaching a sermon to Jewish people who has all of this understanding says this, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. Okay, you follow that? Because they're impure. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Who's making us holy? Uh, You guys are not really convinced. Who's making us holy? Thank you. Jesus is making you holy. Jesus took our sins upon himself. Jesus bore our sins. Jesus is the lamb who takes away our sin. Forgiveness embraced becomes forgiveness given. Until we really experience this in our soul, that we really, you know, I can tell how much we understand of God's forgiveness by the way we treat other people. You see, we may think, well, I understand God's forgiveness, but if we have unforgiveness in our heart towards others, do we really understand it? See, I think we have to really, we need to soak in this for a while. We need to meditate on God's forgiveness to us because it's going to impact how we're going to relate to other people. And I love the story that, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, oh, Gary Preston shares. He said there's a story about a traveler making his way through the jungles of Burma. And they come to a wide but shallow river, and they wade through it on the other side. And when the traveler came out of the river, he noticed there was a bunch of leeches attached to his torso and legs. And his first instinct was to reach down and grab them and pull them off. But the guy goes, no, don't do that. Because you're going to leave tiny pieces of those leeches under your skin, and eventually infection's going to set in. The best way to get rid of these leeches is to bathe in a warm, balsam bath for several minutes. And then as you're soaking, the leeches will just release. And then he shares this application. He says, when I've been significantly injured by another person, I cannot simply yank the injury from myself and expect that all bitterness, malice, and emotion will be gone. How many know that's true? We have a hard time with this. As a matter of fact, resentment still hides under the surface. The only way to become truly free of the offense and to forgive others is to bathe in the soothing bath of God's forgiveness for me. Now that's powerful. You see, we walk around with hurt and anger and unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment. Meanwhile, we've been totally forgiven by God. But somehow there's been a disconnect. We just disconnect somehow between what God's done for me and what, when I really experience this, what I will do for others. Lee Elkhoff shares this insight in how we receive God's redemption and forgiveness for our sins. He said, he was reading the banner headlines that caught the Chicago Tribune one day, and it said there, guilty plea sets inmate free. And he showed a picture of a man embracing his sister And the article told how the man had served eight years and then he had cut a deal with the state attorney's office because 
he had finally admitted he was guilty. And they, they took his time and they basically, you know, to satisfy the sentence. And, and he said, you know what struck me about that headline? He said, he said, what struck me, my first reaction was, another criminal gets off of the plea bargain. That was the first thing in his mind. And then he says, I realized, okay, there it is. I realized that what had happened to me is that this is actually what happened to me. Not, not so much that you know, I was guilty of the same thing, but that freedom is not in a plea of innocence, but in an admission of guilt. And when I finally fathomed the extent of God's love in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of others becomes a natural outflow. That's powerful. Isn't that true? You know, I'm going to have a stand as we close the service in prayer. And you know, you go, Pastor, this was such a fundamental, simple sermon. And yet I am so convinced that so many Christians don't understand it. You know, we hear it preach, Jesus died for me. You know, we hear these concepts. You know, we can even sing the song, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But we don't really understand what the word redeem means. We don't understand what it really means is Jesus paid a price. And his price was his life. And that's why Paul says, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. In other words, if Jesus died for me, I'm called to live for him. It's not about my life anymore. I was once dead. And everyone who has not come to Christ, they're dead in trespasses and sins. And you are living for yourself. And that's why there's so much brokenness in your life. And I'm here to declare to you today that Jesus is the great emancipator. He's going to deliver you from slavery. But it has huge ramifications in life. He's the one that sets us free. He's the one that makes us holy. And then I've, you know, I've been a pastor for almost 40 years, and I can say this. I meet Christian after Christian living in bitterness, anger, resentment, and hurt. And I'm going to myself, you need to soak. You need to get down and say, okay, God, I need a revelation of what you've done for me. I need to get a hold of this. I need to experience in my soul the fullness of your forgiveness so I can let go of all the things that have been done to me. And I can be free to forgive because I've received the greatest gift, the gift of forgiveness. You've given me life. You know, if we really get a hold of this message, I believe it'll change your life. I believe it'll change your agenda. I believe it'll change how you live because you'll no longer live as a slave. You know what the great tragedy was? When finally after the Civil War in the United States, when the slaves were freed, you know what? They didn't know what to do. They were now free, but they had somebody taking care of them for so long they didn't know how to live in freedom. They said, you know, sometimes living in freedom is harder than living in slavery. It's what we get used to. It's what we get used to. And I'm going to encourage us today, you don't want to get used to living in sin. 
you want to be free. You want to experience this freedom. Because at the end of the day, shame disappears. You know, guilt disappears. All of a sudden, meaning and significance and dignity and value and worth get poured into your life. It's powerful stuff. So just that every head bowed right now. How many here can say, you know, Pastor, as I was speaking today, I realized there's things clinging to me. There's leeches, spiritual leeches on my body right now. I know that. I have, I'm, I'm carrying sorrow, I'm carrying unforgiveness, I'm carrying resentment, I'm carrying hurt, I'm carrying pain. Right now, that's you, just raise your hand right now. I'm going to pray with you. Yeah, there's people all over the auditorium raising their hands. That's good that you're saying, hey, I want to be free from this stuff. I want to let it go. I want to be bathed and experience the forgiveness of Almighty God. I want to live with this freedom, this beautiful thought. Think about it. Just go back here for a minute. Who makes you holy? Who makes you holy? Yes, it's Jesus that makes us holy. You're never going to do it on your own. But right now, as we're in his presence, just say, you know, Jesus, I want to to receive a revelation this morning of your forgiveness. I want to receive a revelation this morning of your redemptive love. I want to just bathe in that that soothing expression of your forgiveness to me. I want to just experience that to its fullest degree so I can let go of all the leeches in my life and recognize that I'm going to serve you not because I'm trying to merit something or be accepted in your sight. I'm going to serve you because I am accepted and because you died for me I'm going to live for you. Amen. So Lord, I just pray today that you would reveal yourself to us. Reveal your redemptive love. Reveal your forgiveness. Reveal to us your grace in our lives, Lord. And just remove, Father, the sting, the pain, the hurt, resentments, the bitternesses. Yes, people sin against us and they will continue to sin against us. But Father, I pray today that we will be so full of your redemptive grace and love and forgiveness. These things will not stay with us. That we will have a forgiving, loving spirit. That there'll be something different about our lives. We will not allow evil to overcome us, Lord, but that we'll be able to bless and do good and to love even those that despitefully use us. Because we've experienced that grace in our own souls. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.